This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Yuval Noah Harari. Um, can we begin, Yuval, just with outlining what you see as the, the, the framework of, of, of the book itself. And, mm-hmm. and to me, it, it's, it's all posited around three key revolutions. Tell us a little bit about each of those. Well, um, 70,000 years ago, human beings, homo sapiens, uh, were basically just insignificant apes in a corner of Africa. Uh, not very different in their impact on the ecosystem from uh, many other animals. Uh, before that, our prehistory, what is called, is really just biology. Uh, history begins about 70,000 years ago with the cognitive revolution, uh, during which we don't exactly know how and why uh, we've gained uh, remarkable cognitive abilities, uh, above all abilities to communicate, to use language, and to create and spread fictions, which we'll speak about a lot uh, later on. Uh, these new cognitive abilities turned our species from this insignificant ape into the most powerful force on the planet uh, and led to the very quick spread of sapiens from East Africa all over the world, uh, the extinction of all the other species of humans that back then populated the planet and the colonization of the entire planet uh, uh, by our species. Uh, Then you have the uh, agricultural revolution about 10,000 years ago, which kind of sped up uh, the historical process. It again gave our species immense new powers, uh, enabling us to create uh, trade networks, kingdoms, cities, empires, and so forth. And then the last uh, revolution, which began about 500 years ago, and which we are still really just in the beginning of it, is the scientific revolution. Uh, again, humankind gains immense new powers, uh, su- such big powers that you can say they might really transform us not only from just apes into the rulers of the planet, they might transform us into gods. And this is meant literally, not as some kind of, of metaphor, but humankind are now in the process of acquiring divine abilities through scientific research and technological development. If in the Bible, God creates animals and plants and humans according to his wishes, 
So now humankind is gaining the ability to start redesigning and creating other animals and plants and also ourselves according to our wishes. So this is the third and potentially biggest revolution of all, the scientific revolution. Can I take you to the first one, to the cognitive revolution? There's a, there's a short passage, um, only page 12, very soon into the book, which jumped out at me and which I think speaks to when the newspapers say that you chase the cobwebs mm-hmm. out of the mind. It's this, that you posit when, when Homo sapiens jumped to the top of the food chain, uh, your, your, your uh, uh, comparison is to a banana republic dictator, <laughs> where suddenly, as a result of that very quick jump, not through evolutionary process, uh, that left Homo sapiens full of uh, anxieties over their position. Um, and you go on to claim that you know, many historical calamities, from wars to ecological catastrophe, have resulted from that over-hasty jump. Mm-hmm. very early on in, in the Homo sapiens story. Tell us a little bit more about that. I mean, how can we really claim that, you know, the, the terrible things we see in our world today could in some way be linked back mm-hmm. to a sudden jump to the top of a food chain? Well, if you look at the other uh, animals at the top of the food chain in the world, like uh, lions or sharks or alligators they have evolved to fill this position for millions upon millions of years. They didn't get there very fast or by accident. And both they themselves and the entire ecosystem had time to adjust to it. Mm. Um, Therefore, you have many checks and balances, both internal and external, to make sure that uh, they don't destroy the, the entire food chain. With Homo sapiens, the situation is very different. Uh, Humans have appeared on Earth about uh, two and a half million years ago, evolving from previous species. But for most of these periods, for two and a half million years, they were quite similar to us. They walked on two legs, they had relatively big brains, they had relatively sophisticated social systems, they used tools. And we tend to think that this must have made them the most powerful and important creatures on Earth. But this was not the case. For more than two million years, you had humans with big brains, uh, sophisticated societies, tools, walking on two legs, and not doing much, or at least not having much of an impact on the rest of the ecological system. You had a few, very few million humans spread over Africa and Eurasia, and uh, they were not the top predators. They were somewhere in the middle. They hunted small animals. They ate uh, uh, carcasses left behind by the big predators. And they themselves were prey to the big predators, like the lions or like the tigers or whatever. And then quite quickly, in the last 100,000 years, which is a very short time in evolutionary terms, you have Homo sapiens, one of these human species, jumping very quickly to the top of the food chain, not thanks to a long process of biological evolution by natural selection, but thanks to a much quicker process of cultural evolution. And both we ourselves and the entire ecological system simply didn't have enough time to adjust to it. You see it most clearly when the first humans arrived to Australia about 45 or 50,000 years ago, you have the first humans arrive, Homo sapiens, no previous species could reach Australia because of the ocean. 
sapiens arrive about 45,000 years ago, and within a few thousand years, more than 90% of all the big animals of Australia become extinct. And 15,000 years ago, you see the same thing happening in America with the first humans, the first Homo sapiens, crossing over the Bering Straits to Alaska and then spreading down. And within something like 2,000 years, more than 70% of the big mammals of America become extinct. So there there are no checks and balances there. And you see the process continuing, of course, today with the destruction of the ecological system. Today, on on planet Earth, more than 90% of all big animals are either we homo sapiens or the domesticated animals that we have enslaved to our needs and desires. And we're the banana republic dictators. And, and yeah, this is like the banana republic dictator in the sense that we are very insecure in our position. You look at a lion in the savannah, he's very secure in his position. Uh, Homo sapiens is basically a bunch of sheep that got um, uh, nuclear weapons and atomic power, and sheep with nuclear weapons are far more dangerous than wolves with nuclear weapons because they are not accustomed to such kind of power. They are, and they are much more frightened. And to have somebody who is afraid with nuclear weapons is much more dangerous than to have somebody who feels very secure with nuclear weapons. Well, I'll never look at President Obama or Putin again in the same light. <laughs> the sheep with nuclear weapons is how we can think of them going forward. But once we get to the cognitive revolution, you start to talk about gossip theory. Mm. Uh, and this is where your, your, your idea about the myths that we need to survive really starts to kick in, I think, mm-hmm. in, in your narrative. Um, and you talk about it simply from the point of view of how communities cooperate with one another as they grow larger. That as they get beyond the size where people can know everyone and know everyone's business and sort of self-regulate. If you want to grow beyond that, you need structures, you need the myths, you need yes. the common stories. Um, how, how do you think... You, you, you talk a little bit about, about the importance of getting others to believe those stories for them mm-hmm. to work. But how does that really happen? You know, I can tell a story uh, <laughs> and you can tell a story, but how are we going to get this group to believe your story or my story? Well, the basic method is to get everybody in our community telling the same story and doing it again and again and again and again from early on. If you grow up in a society and you hear everybody telling you the same story, even people who hate each other, telling you the same story from a very early age, there is very little chance that you will doubt this story. Mm -hmm. So this is the, the, the basic method that has been used throughout history. Of course, there are occasions when you have cons- conflicting stories and then you have big problems. But underneath, for a stable society, you need to have at least some stories about which everybody agree. So like, like you have today, very tolerant and liberal society, but basically almost everybody, at least say in the, the UK, believe, accept the basic myth of humanism, about human rights, and uh, the basic, basic myth of capitalism about, uh, about the economy, which we may discuss later mm-hmm. on. What are these basi- basic myths? Can I push you a little further on, on that? I mean, I can understand how, after generations and generations of people telling the same story within a community, you accept it as tradition, as fact, as whatever mm-hmm. it may be. But at the very outset, how do those myths 
gain credence, do you think? How, how do they gather their first generation of believers? Mm-hmm. Well, the crucial thing is, in most cases, at least in the most successful cases, it is not a matter of cheating or manipulating people. If you want to convince people to believe something, usually you have to believe it yourself. And uh, most, I think most uh, Christian priests, they really believe in their stories. Just the same most capitalist bankers, they really believe in the stories that they are telling us. They are not going behind in, the, in some back room and then laughing about us that we believe their stories. I mean, they really believe... I think those... we might think they do sometimes, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, but carry on. No, this is the basic thing. You really believe the story. Also, usually you find that there are several stories that people keep in their mind at the same time. And uh, when one story fails they immediately grasp another story. This is, again, one of the things that differentiates us from other animals, that because so much of our behavior depends on believing in these fictional stories, we can change our behavior extremely rapidly simply by switching from one story to the other, and we usually keep several stories in our heads, and when one fails, we just reach out uh, for the other. And you see it happening in history very quickly. How, uh, this is, again, it's, it's amazing. You think, for exa- you think, for example, about German history in the 20th century. And you see the same people with the same DNA, the same geography, the same climate. And during 100 years, they switch between five completely different stories, just like that from the Second Reich to the Weimar Republic to the Nazi regime to communist East Germany, at least if you lived, say, in Leipzig, and then to a reunited and liberal democratic Germany. And it's the same people. And they somehow manage to very quickly switch the stories in which they believe. And again, as a historian, I tend to think that most of the time it's not, um, it's not a trick. People really believe the story and they completely forget the story in which they believed five years ago or ten years ago. And we also know it from our, from our own personal lives. Usually people hold several narratives of themselves, of their own lives, and they switch between them. And when they switch, they can like shut down something and they completely forget that they ever believed something else about themselves. And the other point you make about... The, the myths that communities tell to enable themselves to exist as communities also has a downside, which in, that in the creation of those communities around a shared myth, you create different communities mm-hmm. with different myths, and thus those myths that, that, that bring people together also simultaneously are dividing people mm-hmm. at the same time. I mean, is there a way out of that dissonance, or do you think that is just the nature um. of the myths themselves? Uh, there is a way out in the long run, and you see that as history progresses, there are basically fewer and fewer stories which more and more people believe. If you go back uh, 2,000 years or 4,000 years, you find that almost every little tribe has its own mythology, has its own set of beliefs about, our, about the world. You go about the world today, and today, at least in some respects, all humans on the planet have a set of, of beliefs, of stories, which they all share. Whether it's, uh, again, capitalism is m- maybe the best example. Money is probably the most successful story ever told. Uh, not everybody believes in the same God, 
or in the same uh, uh, or in the same political myth but almost everybody on the planet believe in the same economic stories about money even say Osama bin Laden he may not have believed in American politics or American culture or American religion but he had nothing against American dollars I mean if you gave him American dollars he would not throw them away as I don't believe that <laughs> And I was learning recently, and I wonder here whether, again, we can bring science back into our historical story. I mean, I think one of the great things about the story you tell is it's, it's interdisciplinary nature, isn't it? That you're moving from science, you're moving to history, and, and back again, bringing the two together. And I was hearing that a recent test has been done in America with uh, the congregation in a, in a Baptist church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've been examining their brain patterns as they are listening to their charismatic preacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what people were expecting to see was uh, affirmation, enjoyment, excitement around the message, uh, kind of endorphins uh, jumping, going crazy, all these sorts of things. But what indeed, instead they saw was that the prefrontal cortex, uh, the sort of the critical thinking area at the front of the mm-hmm. brain, completely shut down. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is not, uh, it was shown later, this mm-hmm. particular congregation. Mm-hmm. But, and, and what the, the scientists are now thinking is that when faced with or listening to a charismatic leader, however you define that, the alpha male of the pack, etc., mm-hmm. what's happening is that our brain is actually hardwired to stop questioning what we're hearing from them mm-hmm. and just accept it. And I wonder how that kind of idea might play into your, your world in which you know, the common belief in myths is absolutely essential for community to function, for the dispersion of myths uh, amongst the community, and for the ability to change those myths, as you've mm-hmm. been outlining. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, because society is based on these belief in common stories... And uh, it also involves, you know, even, even marking that I believe in the same story by wearing a particular kind of hat or having a big beard or wearing a suit. So you just need to see the person, you know, ah, he believes in the same story that I believe. So it's extremely important. So I think it's very, very reasonable that we have something very deep in the way that our bodies, that our brain functions that enables us to just accept the common stories of society without thinking about them too much. Because if all the time we went about thinking about these stories, then society w- will collapse. I mean, I don't want to give the impression that all these fictions are bad. The basic message is that without these fictions, no society could function, at least not any large-scale society. If you look at a band of 100 people, it can function without any... Um, any mythology or any common fictions just on the basis of knowing everybody else. And I know who you are, and so I can trust you or not and cooperate with you or not. But if you try to build a society with thousands of people or millions of people, you must have some unifying stories in which everybody believes. And if we didn't have this mechanism maybe for shutting down the prefrontal cortex, then it wouldn't work. And you go beyond, I mean, in your book, it's not just stories. I mean, I think we can understand if they're they're folk stories told around the fire or, as you say, a story we can all happily buy into, like money. But you also talk about make-believe groups, Mm -hmm. entire hierarchies of society that that would come under the title of a story, a myth for Mm -hmm. you as well. And I wondered there whether, again, calling them a make-believe group 
you know, we may presume that the people believe them when they're, they're, they're making them up, but mm -hmm. to call them that, isn't that taking away a little bit from certain realities, nature and nurture, for instance, as part of the debate? I mean, one of the examples was how do elites... Uh, come about uh, in societies, in a, you know, early societies, say in the medieval period or something like that. Um, and there, one could argue, say, look, well, it, you know, if you've got someone who can afford a horse mm -hmm. uh, and afford some armour to be on top of that horse, then they can defend the people. Uh, and as a result of being able to defend the people, they, as a result, occupy an elite position in society and make decisions mm -hmm. about what that society should do. Now. I'm, I'm struggling with seeing that as a completely make-believe group, hmm. as opposed to it being a very obvious, commonsensical kind of, well, they're able to do that, so that's why they get the position that they do. How would you kind of square those two? No, definitely. Uh, what usually happens is that some accidental process leads to a particular group of people, say the people who had horses, hmm. uh, finding themselves on top. But then the crucial thing is, is how do you... Uh, how do you maintain your position? Mm. How do you establish not just a temporary hierarchy, but a long-lasting hierarchy? And then, after 300 years, coming to the peasants and saying, look, 300 years ago, my great-great-great-grandfather had a horse, so now <laughs> you must all obey me. It, it wouldn't convince anybody. And <laughs> I'd love to see people try, though. That would be well worth it. And similarly, if you take like, a modern example... If in the 19th century, I don't know, in, in the southern United States, the white plantation owner would come to the, to the slaves on the plantation and say, okay, 300 years ago, this and this happened. This is why you are now slaves on, on my plantation. Not only it would be very difficult for these people to accept it, even for himself, to explain it to himself what justifies my position, my privileges, my power. People need some kind of much deeper justification than some accident of history that happened 300 years ago. So they invent all kinds of stories. Uh, for instance, of racial superiority of religious justification. Like in India, you have this basic creation myth that you had the original beings, the Purusha and the Brahmins, the upper castes, they came out of its head. Mm -hmm. And the, the Shudras, well, at the bottom of the hip, they came out of his legs. So this is why they must obey the, the Brahmins. Now, this sounds much more acceptable if you, if you put it in, in the right religious context, then saying that 2,000 years ago, some tribes from Central Asia invaded the Ganges Valley and subjugated the local population, and this is why we have now this caste system. Move on to another disparity, which I know uh, we, I, I, was, I was primed to definitively ask you about this okay. this evening, and that's gender. Mm. Um, you know, in your book, you, 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 you show that so many cultures geographically spread around the world, temporally spread across history, have prioritized men over women. Mm -hmm. and, and you struggle to, to, to offer, as everyone does, a convincing explanation for why that is and why such communities have been so stable. Mm -hmm. uh, can, can you talk us through that? Have you got any more insights uh, since writing the book as to how we might explain um, and understand that and, and quite why it's been such an incredible phenomenon? Well, it's one of the biggest riddles of history because it's obvious that in this case, it's not just the result of some one accidental event. 
And it's not just the, the result of one uh, accidental story, because you see the same structure in different ways uh, in almost all societies. There are exceptions, but in most societies known to science for thousands of years. Now, the simplest explanation that comes to the mind of many people is that men are physically stronger than women, so it's obvious why they have dominated society. But this doesn't really fit in with a lot of other things we know about human beings and about apes uh, in general, and that is that uh, uh, social power, in most cases, is the result of social skills, not of physical strength. If you look at the hierarchies of many most human organizations, they, not they do not correlate with physical strength. If you think about maybe the most long-lasting uh, organization in the world today, the Christian church, uh, you don't become pope by beating up all the other cardinals. <laughs> and I, I think that I won't be offending anybody if I say that, that Pope Francis is not the strongest Catholic on earth in, in physical terms. So I've got this image of, sort of a weightlifting competition happening <laughs> yeah. in the Sistine Chapel now or something like that. Yeah, and it's not just the Catholic Church. I mean, you look everywhere. I mean, you look even at cr criminal organizations. So very often the big boss is somebody in his 50s or 60s whose power is the ability to tell other people, some thugs in their 20s, to go and kill someone. He's not going and killing him himself. And even among chimpanzees, uh, the alpha male is not the strongest male physically. He is the male that is able to construct stable coalitions of supporters. So it's social skills. And it's very often at least believed that women have better social skills than, than men. And if so, and if social skills are the key to uh, uh, social superiority, so how come men dominate society? There is another very common theory that, okay, maybe it's not physical strength, but it's the uh, issue of childbirth and, and taking ch care of children, that women are all the time occupied with being pregnant, with taking care of children, so they don't have time uh, to do all the important stuff, which they, they, they leave uh, to men. But the problem with this theory is that among other animals, like elephants, like bonobos, uh, the pygmy chimpanzees, we have cases of precisely because the females are the ones that are responsible for taking care of the young, they need more support. And because they need more support, they need to cooperate more. And they develop, this is why they develop their social skills, because they need help from other elephants or from other uh, chimpanzees in raising the, the young. And what you get is a network of females which dominates society, Whereas the males, which have much uh, fewer responsibilities with regard to raising the children, they are much more autonomous, they are much more self-centered, they have uh, more difficulties in cooperating, and they are basically pushed aside. So even though the individual uh, male bonobo is stronger than the individual female bonobo, you have a network of cooperating females that dominate society. If this is possible among bonobos or elephants, why not among uh, human beings? Which, uh, in, which in, in their case, I mean, social skills are, are the most important skills. One of the possibilities 
uh, it still doesn't have the, the backing of enough empirical data, so uh, uh, it's not like the answer. But one of the possibilities is that maybe this common idea that uh, women have uh, superior social skills is not true, at least when it comes to large-scale cooperation. One possibility which is worth exploring, and I'm, I'm emphasizing it's just a possibility, it's not, it still hasn't got enough uh, scientific backing, is that, yes, in, in small-scale societies, women have superior social skills, but when it comes to the big organizations as, that are based on all this myth-making, and in which case you have to cooperate with complete strangers, then the, the, you have the reverse situation that women, precisely because they need the, um, uh, the direct social connection, they are at a disadvantage, whereas men who are much more comfortable with an alienated situation, with an impersonal hierarchy, which is based on make-believe, and not on actually knowing the other person, they feel much more comfortable with this kind of situation. So when you have large-scale societies and huge impersonal hierarchies, this is the situation where men actually have superior social skills. Now, as I said, it is just a theory worth examining. It's not the answer. I remember vividly uh, from undergrad studies reading Herodotus, and he tells a story about a, a tribe where all the women of the village, uh, for every male sexual partner, they put a bracelet uh, mm. on their leg. And then when all the women of a particular generation get to a certain age, uh, they count up their bracelets, and the woman with the most bracelets becomes chieftain of the village. <laughs> um, <and laughs> Herodotus looks on it with some, some amusement, I have to say, but it kind of, it's an interesting kind of... that There are examples that, that break your... The, the paradigm, mm. as it were, but they are very few and far between, mm. isn't it? And, and, and usually they are from small-scale societies. Mm. We don't know of any, like, big empire which was matriarchal. Mm. It's a, one of the questions of history still to be understood. Yeah. Like, kind of. um, can we break, come on to, to one of your, your, your main myths that you talk about in the book, money? And we've mm -hmm. mentioned it once or twice already this evening. And, and one of the things you say about money is that, that you know, it can bridge any cultural gap, even though Osama bin Laden is taking American dollars. And I just wondered how you felt that uh, uh, foil, um, if we place it against the recent economic crises that have been rocking Europe, mm -hmm. uh, and particularly kind of posited through Greece, etc., which seemed to me to have been having a very uh, divisive effect and, and opening up cultural gaps, if anything. How would you say the two work together? Well, I think in the recent economic crisis all over the world, we got some amazing examples of the power of our belief in money. At the height of the economic crisis, uh, I think two or three years ago, the Federal Reserve in the U.S. was creating every day $3 billion out of nothing. They created altogether a trillion dollars during, uh, uh, during that year simply by going into the computer and adding a few zeros somewhere, that's it. I mean, today you don't even print the money. Most money is not even printed. It's just electronic data. The basic uh, material from which you make money is human trust. If you have trust, you can monetize it into anything, into even, even into electronic data. So despite the, 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 the recent uh, hits, that uh, the capitalist system uh, has had in, 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 since 2008, still the amount of trust that most people in the world have 
in the capitalist system is incredible. And uh, this is what enables, for example, the, the banks to create so much money out of nothing. You have trust in money and in the system that produces money. You have also trust in the basic uh, capitalist stories that say, first of all... At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Well, maybe the most basic story of all of capitalism is the answer to all problem. The key to all the questions that bother us is economic growth. No matter what you want, in the long term, the only way to achieve it is economic growth. You want equality, you want freedom, you want employment, you want democracy, you want peace. Name it, it's through economic growth. And if there will not be economic growth, in the long run, you won't have any of that. On the personal level, this translates into another extremely powerful myth, the myth of consumerism, which is part of this package, that if you have any problem on the personal level, the solution is to buy something. <laughs> any problem whatsoever, you probably need to buy something and then it will be okay. It can be, you can buy a product or you can buy a service, you can buy a car, you can buy yoga, you can buy marriage counseling, whatever. But the answer to all the problems of humankind on the collective level, they come from economic growth. On the individual level, they come from buying more stuff. And still the vast majority of the population, certainly in Europe, and most of the world, they believe in these stories. And if ever they stop believing in those stories, then the capitalist system will collapse. Take you on to an, another of your, your big myths, thinking about religion. Now, you, you take us through in the book a lot of the religions of the world today and show how there's a certain amount of cognitive dissonance in quite a few of them. But I was wanted to direct your attention towards what you think about the religions of the future. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, obviously, particularly as you've pointed out right at the beginning, we're in the throes of a new revolution, the industrial revolution, the, the scientific revolution that is really going to change mm -hmm. our world once again beyond anything that we understand now. And how do you see religion in the future? I mean, are there going to be techno-based religions? I mean, I think this morning on, on Radio 4 you were talking about Silicon Valley yeah. uh, as, 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 as some god to be worshipped, uh, perhaps now and, and certainly in the future. Yeah, I think the future belongs to techno-religions. I mean, the big religions, the important religions of the 21st century are more likely to emerge from Silicon Valley than they are from the Middle East or from Afghanistan or Syria or any of these places. Um, it's a bit similar to what happened in the 19th century with the Industrial Revolution. Uh, when the Industrial Revolution swept through the world, you had a lot of reaction. It created a lot of, uh, of new problems. It destroyed a lot of old certainties and hierarchies. As uh, Marx and Engels wrote in the uh, Communist Manifesto, everything solid melts into air. And when everything solid melts into air, people become very afraid and they look back to some reassuring 
old tradition, mythology, religion to give them security. So back in the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution led to a wave of fundamentalism all over the world. Uh, the biggest war of the 19th century was not the Napoleonic Wars, it was not the American Civil War, it was the Taiping Rebellion in China, when in reaction to the coming of the Industrial Revolution, of British imperialism, of the collapse of the old Chinese system, you had this failed scholar, Hong Xiu Kuang, who had a vision from God, allegedly, in which God revealed to Hong that he, Hong, is the younger brother of Jesus Christ, sent to earth to establish the kingdom of heavenly peace. And he went around southern China with this message of heavenly peace, and millions followed him into the Taiping Rebellion, which was the most bloody war of the 19th century. According to the most uh, moderate estimates, 20 million people died, perished, in the Taiping Rebellion, which lasted 14 years until it was uh, repressed. The biggest war. And similarly, you had other fundamentalist movements, like you had in Sudan, the Mahdi, quite similar in, in some respects to what we see today in the Middle East. But none of this worked. When we look back to the 19th century, we don't remember it as the age of faith. The really important religion or ideology that came out of the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century was socialism. In 1800, you didn't have any socialists. It started very little, but then it spread like wildfire and became the most important ideological movement of the era, changing our lives completely. And the key to the success of the socialists was that they were relevant. They looked to the future, not to the past. They didn't study ancient scriptures. They studied the technology and the economic structures created by the Industrial Revolution. Therefore, they had something relevant to say about the new problems and opportunities of the Industrial Revolution. Now we are in the midst of a second Industrial Revolution. This time, the main engines of change are not steam and electricity, they are uh, uh, biotechnology and computer science, intelligent design. This time, the main products will not be textiles and vehicles and things like that. They will be bodies and brains and minds. The main products of the 21st century are likely to be bodies and brains and minds. And the Islamic State has nothing relevant to say about the new opportunities and danger of this. For example, what will happen when artificial intelligence will replace most humans in the job market? Uh, experts estimate that it could pay, take as little as 30 or 40 years for this to happen. You don't have any answer in the Bible what to do when humans are no longer useful to the economy. You need completely new ideologies, completely new religions, and they are likely to emerge from Silicon Valley or from Bangalore and not from uh, uh, the Middle East. And they are likely to, pro to give people visions based on technology. Everything that the old religions promised, uh, happiness and justice and even eternal life, but here on earth with the help of technology and not after death with the help of some supernatural being. If we can finish up with one more question before I want to open it up to the audience for the second half of this evening. But one of the, the key tenets of the scientific revolution, you put it, is, 
is the fact that we were able to admit ignorance, hmm. that there were things that we didn't yet know and that it was worth going out trying to find them out. Mm -hmm. And how do you feel that sits with the myths we tell that we need to survive in communities, that need to be believed, that need to be all-encompassing? Mm. How do those two things sit by side by side, and how will they sit by side by side in the future, do you think? Well, science doesn't provide any answers for ethical questions. Mm. Therefore, it can never stand by itself. And even in, at a deeper level, science is not really, at least this is why I view as a historian, science is not really about truth. It's about power. The real aim of science as a project, as an establishment, is not truth, it's power. Uh, particular individuals, particular scientists, may be very interested in the truth, personally. But as an uh, institution, the real aim of science is power, and therefore it can and it must form alliances, always, with some ideology or religion. We have in our head this, again, story, this myth, that science and religion are enemies, that they are fighting against each other, and that hopefully, in the end, the light of science will prevail over the darkness of superstition and, and religion. I think this is very, very, very far from what is, has actually happened in the last few centuries and what will continue to happen in the next century. Science, there are conflicts between particular scientific theories and particular religions, yes. But at basis, science and religion are friends, are allies. Uh, science provides the power. Religion tells us what to do with it. With the same technology, say artificial intelligence or genetic engineering, you can do completely different things. With, artificial, sorry, with genetic engineering, you can cure cancer or you can make designer babies. What to do with it? Scientists have no answer. There is no experiment in biology or physics which will tell you what to do with uh, genetic engineering. For this, you need to believe in some story, in some religion, in some ideology, and this will continue to be the case in the 21st century also. Well, thank you very much. So we're going to open it up now uh, to the audience, and the way this is going to work is we've got down on the ground floor here, we've got uh, some four mic spotters. Yes, you, <laughs> you deserve a glass of water after that. Um, uh, to uh, pick up, uh, to get a mic to you, and if you're up on the top level, you, there is a freestanding mic right in the centre. Um, my question is really with the gender imbalance. Uh, issue. I wonder if you have an opinion, given what you know of different groups of people throughout history and how they've attained power, looking at the world today, what in your opinion could be the most important thing women could be doing to address um, this gender imbalance either in behavior or action? And related to that, um, if you have an opinion on that, why do you think it hasn't happened already? Okay, so we've got gentlemen. We'll hold that one if you don't mind. But if mm -hmm. you pass the microphone forward to the gentleman in the row in front. Hi, thank you for such a great talk. Uh, Jewish and Christian and Catholic religions have committed terrible genocides based on their myths. Do you think these religious leaders who've created these myths and pushed these myths around the world should go to prison based on their myth belief and pushing it across the world? Thank you. Okay, so we've got gender and religion, two small topics for you to deal okay. with, and one more uh, <laughs> coming from the lady in the blue. 
And another easy one, climate change. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you think homo sapiens communities will look like over the next 50, 100 years, given that we're in the beginning stages of maybe the, the next mass extinction. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, just your thoughts on how you think we're going to respond to climate change. Yeah. Okay. okay. The future. Gender, religion and climate change. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> Two minutes? <Yep>. Sure. <laughs> so, with regard to gender, I think that uh, there's been a tremendous change over the last century. Uh, it may be the biggest social change uh, in thousands of years of history. For thousands of years, you had so many different revolutions, uh, political, social, and economic, so many different things changed, but this basic patriarchal structure of most human societies, at least the, more, the bigger human societies, didn't change. Uh, and over the last hundred years, you see a really fundamental change in the status of women and in the relations, in gender relations in general. It's still very far from being a completely egalitarian society, and it's questionable whether it it will be possible ever to have a completely egalitarian society. But uh, I I wouldn't say that uh, uh, nothing has has been done or accomplished in the last few decades. Looking to the future, and this also links to the the other question, I'm not sure there will still be genders uh, in 50 or 100 or 150 years. Uh, with this new ability to re-engineer, to create bodies and brains and minds as the basic products of the 21st century economy, the most uh, fundamental um, structures of the human body and mind themselves might change. So I'm not so sure that 100 years from now, people will have a clear gender of just one gender, uh, just to give an example of what is starting to happen, um, in virtual realities, for example, it's very easy for a person to adopt a different gender, uh, to change genders, or to construct all kinds of alternative genders. And you have today, like kids, uh, boys who play the roles of girls and vice versa in, as, as avatars in virtual worlds. Today, it's still very primitive. You sit in front of the computer, and it's a two-dimensional reality. But in 30 years, 50 years, uh, more and more of a life might be transferred into a three-dimensional virtual reality, which provides people with far more excitement and far more interest than the drab life in the outside world, in an economy where they are no longer needed, and a political system which, in which they have no power. And in such a situation, I mean, it's, it's, I wouldn't just take it for granted that the gender structure familiar to us today and from thousands of years in the past will still be relevant in, in 50 or 100 years. So these are a few thoughts uh, about gender. Uh, the other topic was religion. Religion, yes. Uh, whether to, to put on trial um, uh, people for propagating myth that then causes genocide and, and so forth. I think the, que- the, the, big, the real question is, uh, I don't have like a, a, an answer for all cases, but a very obvious question to ask is what is the relation of cause and effect 
between the people who first uh, invented the myth and spread them and the people who committed the, 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 atrocities, the atrocities or the genocide. I wouldn't put Jesus on trial for what the crusaders have done a thousand years after, after his, de- his death. Uh, at least according to the best of my understanding, there is a very, very big difference between what he preached and what the crusaders uh, uh, understood from his preaching. In, on other occasions, for instance, in the case of, I don't know, the Hitler and the Nazis, there is a much closer link between the people who first spread their stories and the atrocities that were committed in the name of, of these stories. What we need to remember is that Homo sapiens has an incredible capacity to reinterpret stories. This is one of the, of, of, of the, of, uh, uh, the power of stories. that It enables them to change and to adapt. So a story can say uh, uh, white, and people will say, yes, 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 this is just an allegory. When, it says, when it's written white, it actually means black. And when it says that you should uh, uh, love thy neighbor, it actually means that you should crucify thy neighbor or you should uh, uh, put him, burn him if he doesn't believe in the same version of the religion of love and compassion as, as, as your version. <laughs> so from this perspective, I wouldn't blame the people who necessarily, the people who invented the story in the first place, I would also look at the people who reinterpret the story in very creative ways uh, sometimes. And then climate change, oh. particularly in light of VW uh, recently. Well, uh, climate change is, is a very uh, depressing issue because uh, in, in this case there is a lot of talk but n- no fundamental change. And, and the basic problem here is um, probably the uh, fundamental capitalist story of economic growth. At least at present, maybe in the future they'll find some way to to make the two work together, but at least at present, there is really no way of reducing, say, the emission of greenhouse gases, of stopping or slowing down even uh, uh, global warming without reducing, halting, or decreasing economic growth. And no government, almost no government today, is willing or able to do that. When the capitalist story clashes with this problem of uh, global warming, the capitalist story always wins. So maybe we'll find some new technological ways of uh, of, uh, uh, settling the, the two together, but uh, if that doesn't happen, then I don't think that uh, chances, at least now, is that we won't do anything um, radical enough in time. And that uh, this is an unfolding disaster that humanity is simply walking into and will have to face the consequences in a not-too-distant future. And then there was a, a, a lady in the front row, yeah, there. I want to ask, um, do you think love is a myth? Mm-hmm. Now, that's the kind of question. Uh, <laughs> get people, and there's a lady in the back row uh, on that section as well. Thank you. Um, um, I have a question um, regarding... Um, well, it seems, it seems um, that we're kind of between stories at the moment and uh, a lot of the questions here today 
seem to um, uh, pinning their hopes for new stories, and so is the case with mine. Um, I'm just wondering if you have, um, or, or what your view is on the dissonance between um, the stories we tell children about nature and animals and the um, abysmal way in which we allow animals to be treated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay, so first about the nation state and, and, and politics. Uh, for the last 200 years, the nation nationalism was one of the most important stories and, and myth uh, 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 in the world. But we are now seeing the, the decline in the importance of, of, of nationalism. Despite all the talk about the revival of nationalism, say, say, in Europe, when you compare the strength of nationalism in Europe today to what it was a century ago, it's, there is absolutely no comparison. Uh, just a hundred years ago, in the First World War, uh, Italy, for example, joined the war, the First World War, in 1915. Nobody forced it to join the war. Nobody invaded it. It joined the war of its own uh, volition in order to gain a few little territories, mainly Trieste and the Trentino, that they claim this is sacred Italian soil, uh, illegally occupied by the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Italy lost in the war something like 650,000 soldiers killed and more than a million soldiers injured for Trieste and the Trentino. No Italian government today would risk even 5,000 soldiers to get some territory from Slovenia or from Austria. It's, it's almost unthinkable. Similarly, if you think about all the, the, the independence movement in Scotland, if you compare that to what you had, say, 200, 300 years ago, uh, it's, there is no comparison. Almost nobody was willing to be killed or to kill somebody for or against a, a Scottish independence compared to the situation two, three hundred years ago when the government in London was willing to basically send its army to the highlands and then practice a sort of uh, ethnic cleansing uh, after Culloden, after 1745. So it's a totally different kind of story. Uh, you can maybe talk today in Europe about boutique nationalism, which is kind of nice to have under this big protective umbrella of the European Union, but nobody's going to be killed uh, uh, for this uh, uh, boutique nationalism. And it makes good historical sense for nationalism to be waning because the big problems of humankind in the 21st century are all global in nature, uh, and there is no country that can solve these problems on its own. Uh, It's not the right level. Whether it's global warming, whether it's the global economic crisis, whether it's the opportunities and dangers of new technologies like artificial intelligence, what will happen when artificial intelligence will outperform humans in, co- in, in cognition, in intelligence, uh, this is not the kind of thing that a single government of a single country can solve by itself. So uh, in, in this sense, the future hopefully, would belong to a more global uh, sort of politics. If humankind cannot move to this level of more a global political system, not necessarily a global government, 
but some kind of more effective global political system, we will not be able to face effectively the really important problems and dangers of the 21st century. So this is about uh, 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 politics. What about love? Uh, about love. So uh, my husband is in the audience, so I have to be careful, very careful about what I'm saying now. Uh, love is certainly real, but there are many, many, many myths <laughs> that have been... <laughs> love is, is a, both a biological and a personal subjective reality. Uh, but there are a tremendous amounts of uh, mythologies and stories woven around, uh, around it. Uh, like you see a, a Hollywood science fiction movie, and you have the aliens conquering the galaxy and invading Earth. Or you have the Matrix, this all-knowing, all-powerful system that enslaves humankind. And you have the hero being manipulated right and left by this system. And you have the evil robots of the aliens. Uh, he's, he's riddled with bullets from, from, from these aliens or robots or whatever. And then in the very last moment, when everything seems hopeless and humanity <laughs> is going to be destroyed or conquered by the aliens, suddenly something happens. And the hero wakes up and turns the table, and the aliens don't know what happened, and the Matrix cannot understand what is happening, and this is all because of love. This is the best that most Hollywood screenwriters can come up with. <laughs> and um, it's not even some, you know, it's not even some cosmic compassion or something like that, it's usually a very carnal type of love between two mammals. And um, my personal viewpoint is that it's extremely unlikely that aliens that have managed to conquer the entire galaxy or a super intelligent computer that, that ruled this entire reality cannot fathom, cannot understand a hormonal rush. So I, I don't think that this kind of, of myth uh, uh, um, works. And the lady next door. Hi. Um, it was interesting to hear your thoughts on consumerism and the idea that we buy things, or in the book you say that we travel, for example, because we're driven by um, a consumerism lifestyle. Do you think it's also possible that we would travel because we... Um, we want to explore the world. We are people who are driven to a higher intelligence or experiences, cultural experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we often tell ourselves that we want, we, we travel to the other side of the world because we want to explore the world, but all the airports and all the resorts look exactly the same. And uh, there is less and less exploring to do in this geographical sense of really going to the other side of the world. And even when, not all, of course, not all travelers, but very often when people do go to the other side of the world, they still want to have all the things that they had back home. They, in a deep sense, they don't really want to explore the world. Again, they, they believe in these stories that they see on the commercials and, and, and so forth, that by traveling to Thailand or to Mexico, I will explore a different reality, and I'll uh, get in touch 
with a different part of myself, but in reality, I don't think there is kind of inside yourself, there is a box of emotions and sensations with the label, open only when you're in Mexico. <laughs> and then you get to Mexico and wonderful things come out. Uh, basically, I think that everything you can hope to know about yourself, you probably can know it even here in London. <laughs> That's not something the playing companies want to hear. <laughs> so, um, I'm very sorry to you. We haven't managed to get to for questions. Sadly, we're going to have to uh, wrap things up now. Um, one thought that, that, that struck my mind, that we've been painting a picture which is potentially not that happy uh, about, uh, uh, about the future. And you know, the way you end your book describing us as dissatisfied and irresponsible gods who, who don't know what they want... Um, I think sets a, a, a question mark by where that future's going. But to be honest, I comfort myself with the fact that um, if you remember back to Back to the Future Part 2, <laughs> when, they, when they went to the future and imagined it, the year they actually went to was 2015. Uh, and here we are, and uh, I still don't have my flying car, and uh, 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 the self-tying laces of the Nike trainers um, haven't turned up, although apparently Nike have promised something of that sort by the end of the year. So perhaps, you know, given even our best intentions, we can't predict the future with any accuracy. Um, and I throw that last thought to you for the final word. Yeah, definitely. We, there is no way we can predict the future today less than ever before in history. Uh, nobody really has a clue how the economy or society or gender relations would look like in 2050. What we can do is uh, explore some of the possibilities. Uh, I think that the, the, for historians, for academics, the task with regard to the future is not to make predictions. It is to explore different possibilities, to prepare ourselves for different possibilities. And in this sense... It's often said that you study history in order to kind of predict the future and learn lessons from the mistakes of the past and so forth. I think that the main reason to study history is to free ourselves from the past. The past controls us through all these stories and institutions. The past controls our hopes, our thoughts, our dreams, our fears and shapes them, and this really limits the horizon of possibilities which we can see before us. And I see my job as a historian in trying just a little bit to relax this grip of the past and enable us to envision uh, a wider horizon of possibilities. Ladies and gentlemen, Yuval Noah Harari. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs>